This episode of On the Spot contains sensitive material. Parental discretion is advised. Welcome to On the Spot with Melinda Garvey, the On the Dot interview series where we sit down with some of the most intriguing and interesting women to watch featured in our daily email newsletter and podcast, Four Minutes with On the Dot. Make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode of On the Spot, now available every Thursday on your favorite podcast streaming services. This week, I sit down with Mary Murray, director of the Shelter Children's Home in Kenya. Without further ado, let's start the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to On the Spot. I am your host, Melinda Garvey, and I'm super excited to have you all here today. As you all know, On the Dot is in a mission to guide women to success through the stories of really incredible role models from around the world. And we've been so lucky to have incredible women, and we are again lucky today because we are welcoming a woman who's actually visiting here in Austin, Texas, but she is from Kenya, um, near Nairobi, and we want to welcome Mary Muriuri. She is the director of the Shelter Children's Home. Welcome. We're really excited to have you today and to talk about your amazing work. Thank you. I'm excited to be with all of you and to tell you what I do. Excellent. So before we kind of get started, I guess, just on talking about what you're doing today, what, what we always love to do is to really kind of go back to when you were growing up, you know, as a young woman, what was your big dream? What were you going after when you were young? What did you want to be when you grew up? I grew up in a rural home in central parts of Kenya, and uh, I grew up in a poor family. And so we struggled very much even to have a meal you know, a meal in a day. And my, my mom used to do a lot of casual labor to make sure that we can go to school, to make sure that we can eat. And so my story and the work I do is so related that maybe God was preparing me for helping. And when I was young, I used to do a lot of church work, you know, lead Sunday school, teach kids about God. That time we didn't used to have dreams, I would say, because these are, I was born in 1960. And so the time I was going to school, we didn't have these people. Our parents didn't know how to mentor us on what you want to be. And we didn't have things like newspapers and things to read about anything. So basically, I grew up in a village, a little bit ignorant of the future, but just growing. But the good thing is that I was a very bright kid in school. And so I used to get a lot of profits and good things. And I was liked even by the church community because of the work I did when I was small. And that could have now translated into what I do today. Well, I understand that, that you actually were an accountant. Did you study to be an accountant? I trained to be a professional accountant, accounts mm -hmm. dealing with finances. So that's my profession. And so accountants, shy, quiet, <laughs> because they are only dealing with numbers, not with people. Most accountants are not outgoing. They are just, they live in their own world. And so that's what I was before 1997. Oh, that's excellent. I actually watched a, a YouTube video, which was really great, really gave you a, just a great sense of the kids and the shelter and what was happening there. But I heard you talk about how this shelter was actually your grandmother's kind of her big dream, right? Mm -hmm and wanted you to carry it on. So tell us a little bit about how it all got started and, and your grandmother and you following in her footsteps. So in 1997, I was living with my grandmother because she had an asthmatic attack and she used to live in my house. We were good friends. And so 
during our stay, she would introduce us to community work. And she used to help women, connect them to churches so that they can get help, get food, just some little basic help for the poor women. And so she had this idea that the children were also hurting in the streets. That time we had so many kids in the streets of Nairobi and everywhere. And one thing, they were a menace to people. And the other thing is that they are hungry. And so she thought, maybe we can do some programs of feeding. And I am telling her, I don't think I can do that, but I can help. So during the time when I am not working, I used to work with her in the streets to give kids food. And this food we would collect from people, women, friends, and we tell them we are feeding kids. And we would feed 100 people, children, 150, sometimes 200. And we realized we are making no impact. And my grandmother comes with this idea that, can we keep 10 children in a house and we take care of them and see what they can be? And so that was a lifetime thing. But we said, yes, we were many women. We can try. And so we didn't settle with 10. We settled with 25. So it became, initially, it was like just an extracurricular activity. But now it becomes a program. It becomes a commitment. It becomes a responsibility. And then in the year 2000, my grandmother is on her deathbed. She says, the only thing I want you to keep is the children project. And before I asked her any question, she was gone. Mm -hmm. And I cried. I tell people, I didn't cry because she was dead. I cried because of what she had said, because I didn't know what to do. And so from the time she died, I had to embark on this journey alone. And all the women don't want to do charity. You know, charity is difficult because it's a consumer project. The children will always eat what you get, wear clothes, tomorrow they need more, they need to go to school. So it's not like a business where you pack and go and, you know, people can make profits. So they withdrew from the program and I was literally left like alone, you know, contemplating, do I leave it to go? And then I have my grandmother's like a curse that you can't leave it. So that's how I came to do this project. Excellent. I would imagine just as you said, not only is your job rewarding, of course, but it's a lot of challenges. Hard work caring for and raising these children, then raising the money and the funds and the resources to be able to do that. What was your biggest hurdle in this nonprofit, you know, the NGO and the charity work? Like, what are your biggest challenges? The greatest challenge that I go through from that time was first and foremost to bring, to, to mobilize some supporters to support my work. And there are government regulations that you need to follow so that you can take care of the kids in a certain predestined way. So you don't have the money, you don't have contacts, you don't know how to write proposals. And so my first steps towards it was to study, to do some little courses on how to manage organizations, how to manage vulnerable children, how to fundraise, how to write a proposal, how to keep time if you are going for meetings. And lastly, I had to do public speaking because I was a very shy person. And if I ever, I wouldn't face and look at 10 people like that. I'm biting my fingers. I'm so nervous. And so I had to do some public speaking course. And that has helped me over the years because I can talk to anybody. Then I embarked on trying to get partners. So you go to companies, you go to churches, you go to corporates. And the first, first supporters would be your family and your friends. 
So that's how I started. But I, I struggled so much. Many times I thought I want to terminate my life. I don't want to live again with this project because it's not picking up. And you have kids to feed. You have kids to go to school. You have to dress them. You need to address their emotions. And you don't have money to pay staff. So most of that work you are doing. I used to have a small bag that I used to put in my handbag. So if I went and somebody gave me something, food, I put in it and I carry it on my back because I don't have a car or I don't have anything. Hearing you talk, and of course I, you know, I interview and talk to so many entrepreneurs and I'm an entrepreneur myself, and that is exactly what you are. Exactly all the steps you took to yes. get the education, to build your confidence, to, to really study and learn those things, and then having to reach out to companies. I think the big difference is that what I'm doing isn't a day-to-day, and what most people are doing isn't a day-to-day life. Yeah. You know? I mean, people depend on this. Their lives, these children's lives depend on it. But it always is striking to me all the steps that we as entrepreneurs and as business women have to take. You have to do all those things too. Yes. And I, I think that sometimes that nonprofit leaders or people you know, who are doing the kind of work you're doing aren't seen as, you don't always look at it that way. And I think it's really amazing, you know, just the work and the education you took the initiative so that you could really make an impact. Yes, yes, very true. Let's talk a little bit about your public speaking, because I, I know that last year you were actually asked to speak at the UN about female genital mutilation, FGM, as they call it. Yes. And I would just love for you to kind of talk about your experience. And then also, what do we need to know about this crisis? Okay, because of my background, I like fighting for people. I like fighting, and especially for women. Because again, I've grown up in a culture, in a tradition where women are not respected. And it can range from, you know, wife beating, you know, abusing kids, raping girls, marrying them off at the age of nine. So I also have done some literal work on women empowerment programs. And one of those would be to bring women together for a certain one cause. We say, we don't want this. And I have been involved in a lot of gender-based anti-violence campaigns. And now, because where I am, I am in the Maasai community. Maasai is one of the tribes in Kenya that has really held to their traditions. And so they still do female genital mutilation and they marry off girls at the age of eight, nine, and 10. And so most of the girls I have are from the rescues of the Maasai. And so I was identified as one of the people that are doing a great job in trying to speak out for women. So I was given the opportunity to come and share and listen to what the other countries are doing in that area. So in our country, female genital mutilation is still a big menace because as much as the government has said it's illegal, it's still practiced behind doors. And sometimes you don't know unless somebody shouts it out. So one of the main things we've been doing is to shout out. There is a lot of women, girls abuse, and, you know, girls are being married off at an early age. Girls are going through female genital mutilation. And maybe so you know, also in Kenya, the female genital mutilation is done at different levels. Some of it is so bad. The incision where, you know, they have to cut a bigger part of women's genitalia, and that destroys them. By the time they are of age and they are giving children, some of them are getting a lot of problems giving birth. And breeding, some of them have ended up dying because of that. 
And so we are trying to say, and these are retro girls, and it's done to them when they are very young. I personally went through female genital mutilation. I wish I knew. But for us, it was just a cut, a small of the clitoris. Some people like Somar, they do it very badly. And others end up doing the cut and then they stitch the vagina. So they will remove, you do a surgery when you get married. So you can imagine how painful it is when somebody is going through their menstrual circle and then, you know, you cannot, even passing, you know, urine becomes hard for everyone. So we talked about that in the United Nations and I also got some what different countries are doing. In our country, we are trying a lot to sensitize. But look at this, it's a tradition, it's a culture. So some tribes hold the culture so hard that they'll still do it behind the door. Whether they want to do it and say they do it in the hospital, that is a modern, but it is still barbaric because it adds up to the same thing. The other thing that makes them do it is they say that when they cut that clitoris, then the women have no desire for men. And so that keeps the girls for a longer time before they get married because they are not going to have like sexual activities when they are young because they believe that thing, the clitoris is the one that they say is the, you know, you understand what I mean. Yes. So that is also denying somebody their right. So we are telling that people be, God created us like this. Why are you trying to remove part of the creation that God did? And so it's been a big struggle. And especially I am not a favorite of men in my community because I refuse them to marry off the girls. I refuse them to cut them. And so every time they pass there, they don't even greet me. But I say, it's okay. Now we have some of the girls that we rescued. They are in the university. Tomorrow they'll be doing the campaigns. That makes me feel very nice. Yes, that's amazing. And let's talk a little bit more about these success stories. Because, you know, you've been doing this now a long time. And I know that you've got a high school. And then you said women are going on to university. So I'd love for you to talk about some of your success stories. Because your whole goal is to actually raise these children to be really productive and positive members of society. So tell us some of your success stories. Yes. So, like, we have girls currently in the university whom we raised at eight years and they were going to go through the female genital mutilation. So these girls are preparing. They want to be activists, you know, and talk about it in their community because it would be easier for the same people to do it in their own community because they understand how they do it. And so we are preparing girls, and we have a girl today who got a child because she was forced into marriage and is now in high school, and even today we use her to go and talk to other girls in their community. So we take them there, we tell them, tell the people about how you got their school, because she really wanted to go to school. When she got married, first married, and the cows were paid, they pay cows, they give cows, many of them like 50, 100. And she told somebody that I would really want to run away from this home and go to school. And so the government sent police to go down and rescue her with her baby. So she came when she was 13, and the baby was two months. So today, the baby is four years, and she is in high school, and she wants to work towards protecting the rights of the girls in the Maasai community. So that's a good, because she's studying so hard and saying, I want to be a lawyer. I want to do something on community development. So that's one. We rescued a girl who was raped by her own father, and she got pregnant. So that kind of a child 
in our country is usually killed because it's incest. And so this girl is very bitter because she does not want to see this child. And so the first step we did was when she gave birth, we adapted the child off. So she never saw the child. Today she is in the university studying law and she wants to do children rights. She wants to be a lawyer for children. And she said, I will want to do it pro bono. I don't want children to pay. Because also some cases we take to court and we have to pay a lot of money for the children. So for me, it's actively working for the women and as young as the ones they are, that nobody rapes them, nobody denies them the chance to go to school, nobody denies them the right to be what they want to be. If they want to be career women, let them be career women. But you find that in our country, most of the women are really abused and you know they do not have self-esteem. So they lose what they would have been because somebody is trying to put them at a certain lower level. No, I love that because, you know, everything that we do with On The Dot is all about role models. And I think that what you're doing is you're creating a succession of yes. role models, which is what we need. We all need to be able to see the women out that have made it beyond. I think yes. that what you feel is a hopeless situation, whether that be where you are, you know, what's happening with the Me Too movement in the United States. And I think seeing the women who have gone past it and having them advocate is hugely important just so that you know that there's something on the other side. Yes. And the other thing we do is now some of our girls, they have very big talents. We have a girl that sings very well. And we also rescued her from the Maasai community. And she has this great voice. So she's singing nationally. You know, she can sing and she can win competitions and she can get money out of it. So that's also good. We have yeah. one girl that is doing marathon running. You know, the Kenyan, we are good at long distance running. So we have one girl that is doing it. Whatever they can be, we have a girl who does national level hockey. So for me, girls, I give them a front. I don't really discriminate, but I push the girls more because I know that they can really be vulnerable when it comes to the relationship between them and men. Yes, we talk a lot here in the States about bridging that confidence gap. If we can bridge that confidence gap and have women feel that they can do that, then that's when equality can really be strong. And also I do a lot of um, talks with women, even today, about empowerment, about being what God wanted you to be. Groom yourself, wake up feeling strong and feeling energetic. Put your lipstick, do your hair, and walk out in confidence because the more confidence they are, the more they are ready to face the world and to do whatever needs to be done. And even when you look at, in Kenya, most of the very successful charities, they are headed by women because mm. women have patience. <laughs> That's right. <And> men. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that, you know, women are all about building communities and putting back into the communities and using the, the resources that we have, you know, to build up the whole community. And that's what builds that longevity and makes everyone thrive. Yeah. That's wonderful. So tell us, just as we close, what can our listeners do to help? Where can they find you and how can they get involved? What are some of your needs? Okay. I am partnering with HRS True Hope. They are in Georgetown. Mm-hmm. And so we put across all projects that we need to do with them together because the money raised here goes through them. So they can also give a tax receipt to people donating and then the 100% volunteers. So that we get all the money that is raised here. Our contacts are the ladies that you've been talking to. Mm-hmm. And some of the things we have come up with successfully is from survival to sustainability. 
And last year I was here and I, we raised money to build a sustainability center. So in that center, we can sell things like honey. We are doing vegetable farming. We are doing chicken and we are doing dairy farm. We sell some water and we are having a small shop now for jewelry so that we can raise money for ourselves. Because in charity, most of the time you find you are begging, begging, begging. So we are still working on that issue of sustainability. Among the things that this year we are looking at is buying more greenhouses, buying more beehives, buying more chicken, buying cows, and making those projects really good so that they can raise money. In our feasibility study, we realized that those five projects can help us be sustainable on our monthly expenditures, which will include paying school fees, paying our staff, having food to eat, and basically running the home on that. So our contacts will give you more information about the numbers in each project, which you, you can help. We have yeah. projects on security. We have projects on solar. And I know women can do it because I have done it. Together we can do it. Yes, That's right. we can make a difference. Absolutely. And we will make sure that we will include all the links so that the listeners can just click right through and, and find you. Really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today and for the great work that you're doing. It's amazing. And we honor you for doing that. It's wonderful. And glad you're here and hope you enjoy your stay in the United States. How much longer will you be here? I'll be leaving here tomorrow to go to California. And I'll be in California for another five days. Then I head home. Everybody is missing me at home. Oh, I bet they are. I bet they are. (laughs) And on behalf of myself and our work, I want to say thank you for the Austin Women Magazine for listening to me. And I am sure something will be done. So thank you very much. God bless you too. Looking for more inspiration, advice, and direction? Subscribe to our daily email newsletter and podcast, Four Minutes with On The Dot, where we provide you with the tools and motivation you need to get out there and be the badass boss you were meant to be. Tune in next week, where I sit down with Gail Davis, the founder of GDA Speakers. Share On The Dot with your tribe. Like, subscribe, and share onthedotwoman.com, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you stream your favorite pods.